0: it's Chris Freeland, and you're listening to the Doxology Bible Church Podcast. If you want to know more about who we are or learn to connect with us, please visit doxology.church. Most of all, we hope the following message will help you take the next step in your faith journey, whatever it is.
1: In scripture, it says that Stephen looked up to heaven and he saw God, and he saw Jesus standing next to his father, looking at him which was confirmation that in this moment, when Stephen is dying, he saw Jesus. And that was exactly what I needed to hear so that I could know that when whatever was happening to Molly, that she knew that he was with her and that in an instant from the moment she was alive to the moment she died, she was in the arms of Jesus. And and that's what I carried with me to help quiet the fears that would come up in my mind, she wasn't alone. He was with her in that moment, and she has been with him ever since that moment. Doxology Bible Church is proud to present EverStory, launching wherever you listen to podcasts on June 6th. Every story is a weekly, seasonal podcast featuring Christ-centered stories of hope and transformation told by people just like you. No chit-chat, just raw, powerful stories. Stories inspire us to connect with each other in real, tangible ways. With stories, we're able to glorify a God who relentlessly pursues us. Mark 16.15 tells us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Stories embody who we are as Christians. Without them, Paul's letters would have never been shared. Without stories, a person with Christ in their heart might never find the courage to bring the word to their neighbor. Without stories, the Great Commission never occurs. Check in with us often as we introduce stories about the way Jesus' radical love is moving in truly awesome ways. Find every story wherever you listen to podcasts. Also follow doxology bible church on facebook or instagram at doxology bible want to share your story or know someone who might send us an email to stories at doxology.church because everyone has a story
0: hey it's chris freeland and you're listening to the doxology bible church podcast If you want to know more about who we are or learn to connect with us, please visit doxology.church. Most of all, we hope the following message will help you take the next step in your faith journey, whatever it is.
2: Steve Bateman has been here in town for the weekend for our men's conference. And so several uh, of you men were uh, able to hear him this weekend. And so you know that you're in for a treat this morning. He's a very gifted communicator and uh, it's great to have him with us here this morning, for the rest of you to be blessed by his teaching as well. Um, it means a whole lot to me personally to have Steve here. About 27 years ago, I met Steve, and I joked in the first service that that was when I was like two. But uh actually when I was 12, uh, and I was in middle school. And he, our church in Houston that I grew up in, hired him as our youth pastor. And uh, he came and really taught me what it was to have a relationship with Christ, taught me what it was to really follow him and not just pray a prayer, but actually have a lifestyle that walked in the footsteps of Jesus. And so I'm really forever indebted to Steve and just for his ministry in my own life. Um, and so I'm encouraged that he's here and that you get to share in part of that as well this morning, and I think it's going to be a great service. So would you give a nice, warm McKinney welcome to my friend, my former youth pastor, and one of my heroes, Steve Bateman.
0: Thank you, brother. Actually, Jeff was 12. He just acted like he was two when I first met him. It's so good to be back with uh, good friends and to reunite with uh, a number of you. Actually, actually a few of you are still here from 1992 is when we left. We are here from 89 to about 92. I do want to take this opportunity to thank a few people. First of all, I want to thank Ken Horton for asking me to come and uh, speak with you and have this ministry this weekend. I tell people that uh, God, in his goodness, knew exactly what I needed as the next step. There's only so much you can teach in seminary. So I got on-the-job training at McKinney any Bible Church back in those days. The one thing I really was weak on was administration of a multi-staff church and working with Ken in those days was a great opportunity for me and the Lord put us together, I think, for a number of reasons, but one of those would be specifically that reason. Prepared me well for the senior pastorate. I also want to thank Mark North for all his work and all of the good logistical support and help and service he has been to me during the men's conference. I really appreciate Mark's ministry. He's always, always available to me In the weeks leading up to this, and also Chris Freeland, along with Ken, because I I am a preaching pastor, and I know how difficult it is to give up this spot on Sunday morning about this time. So, I do not take lightly the honor that I have been given this morning, and it's a very serious thing, and I am very, very grateful for the opportunity. What I have uh, done is uh, talk to you. By the way, I might have a picture of our family up there, just to let you know. When I left Fort Worth for Decatur, Alabama 1992 I had a full head of hair I had a beautiful wife I had a 21 month old baby girl and I had a 4 year old son and you can see what happened I lost my hair I still have a beautiful wife The little girl is 19, and the little boy is 22 years old. Uh, Josh and Joy are our children. I want to talk to you this morning in follow-up from the men's conference, just to let you know, if you weren't there, what we talked about was credibility, and credibility is is believability. It's the kind of person that people will listen to. Uh, It is the kind of person who can be persuasive because they carry some weight, some gravitas. They have the kind of reputation that people, it just demands a hearing, and we said that there are two things that every man needs to have credibility. These are absolutely essential. One is competence and that's the ability to articulate and defend your faith in Jesus Christ. And the second thing is character, which is the humble obedience to and imitation of the character of Jesus Christ in your life. Those are two essential things. In fact, I know you're doing uh, a book uh, or have been in the men's ministry on uh, simple things or simple life, So I tried to keep it simple. I said there are two things. But I lied and I did false advertising. And I told you that on the third session that there was three things you need. Actually, you need competence, you need character, and you can have credibility with that, but if you want great credibility, that has to come with time. So it's character, competence, and time. Uh, That's important because as we were praying with the elders this morning, uh, one of the things we prayed for, those of you who are at the conference, is that is often the sense and the the timing that the Holy Spirit will move you to resolve to take some action in your life, to move further in your your progressive sanctification, closer to Christ during a conference like that. But within 48 hours, that resolve can can dissolve. And it can go away within a week. So I want to to encourage you, it's over time. It's consistently over time, being persistent and enduring in the faith. Now this morning I want to talk to you about a fourth thing. Competence, character, time. And this fourth thing is absolutely essential if you want enormous credibility. If you want to be the kind of person who has enormous credibility, you must have this fourth thing, but even though you need it, you do not want it. Even though this is necessary for you to go to the next step, the next level in your Christian life, you will not seek it. And, and even though it is a prerequisite for quality and depth of ministry, you will not ask for it. You won't pray for it for yourself, and you will not pray for it for your children. Because what it is is trouble, trouble. It is absolutely essential to your further growth. Trials, affliction, suffering, pain, difficulty, adversity, it is absolutely essential for you to go to the next level in the Christian life. So we don't ask for it. Because we don't ask for it, God in his wisdom and his love and his mercy Gives it to us. It's the gift that nobody wants. Thanks for the trouble, Lord. But He gives it to us. And He gives it to us without fail and imperfection. He's perfect always in His timing of the trouble, and He's perfect always in the severity of the trouble. The trouble you get is the trouble He's designed. And there's a reason. Here's how the Apostle Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and this is the main passage for this morning, beginning in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. The first thing I'd like to say about this, in terms of about four observations, is this that your trouble has not come to you by chance, but by the providence of a sovereign God. It's not here by chance. If you see in verse 6, for instance, it says, If we are distressed, it is for your comfort. The distress has come for a reason. There's perfect, perfect sense in the mind of God for your trouble. It's by design. It's intentional. It is for your ultimate good. He is doing something in your life right now in your trouble. It comes with a purpose in mind. And so, again, you see it in verse 9. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God. Do you see the purpose here? it's intentional in the mind of God. Now, this creates a problem for us because we know, theologically, some things about God. We know that God is omniscient, that he knows all things. In other words, especially when I teach younger people, God is very smart, and he's smarter than anyone in anything that he's created. He knows all things. But the second thing is that God is omnipotent, and he's almighty, and he can do all things, and there's nothing that God does not want to do that he can't do. And the third thing is that God is benevolent, which means that he's good. But trying to put that all together in our trouble becomes very difficult because we might reason like this. Well, maybe God is strong, but he's not smart. Maybe God didn't see this coming. Maybe he could have done something about it if he was smart enough to know it was going to happen. Maybe maybe God watches the Weather Channel. That's our favorite channel at home. It's especially for the music. That's why we like it. And so last night we were watching the Weather Channel because we have two children back in Alabama still, and we heard about tornadoes in Mississippi. And usually we get your Fort Worth weather weather about three days later. Thanks for that. And it comes through Mississippi. We see tornadoes now are approaching Alabama, so we're concerned. Is God like that? Does God have to watch the Weather Channel? Was God last night saying, I'm strong, I can take care of tornadoes. Now where are they? I'm really glad they finally got that Doppler radar. That's really helping out a lot. Or maybe God is smart, but he's not strong. Maybe he knows where the tornado is going to hit. Maybe he knows when it's going to hit. Maybe he knows it's coming, but he wrings his hands in helplessness because he doesn't know what to do about it. Oh, my, there's a tornado coming. Whatever will I do? Is this our God? Or maybe he's strong and he's smart, but he's not good. And in capricious cruelty, he sends tornadoes here and there with no purpose at all. But if you believe any one of those things, that he's not strong or not smart or not good, you have created in your own mind and committed a fallacy called the excluded middle. You have forgotten the fourth alternative. And the fourth alternative is the uniform testimony of the Scripture that God is strong and smart and good. That he's omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent and benevolent and he is right every time. Which means the tracks of the tornadoes are ordained by God. And so are your troubles. We call this doctrine in theology, the, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And we see it. All through scripture it comes out in various ways. Because if this is true, if God is omniscient and God is omnipotent and God is benevolent, it must mean that this fourth option is that he's all three things. Therefore, God has some purpose. That God has some secret and sovereign and perfect plan for you in your trouble. That God is not doing this out of capriciousness, but he's got a goal in mind. And he's doing something in you right now this is how arthur pink the theologian describes the sovereignty of god in a book that he wrote in 1930 in the midst of the great depression the sovereignty of god what do we mean by this expression we we mean the supremacy of god the kingship of god The Godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Most High, doing according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay His hand or say to Him, What doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is God and sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings, and the Lord of Lords, such is the God of the Bible. Behold your God. He is sovereign over thunder and lightning, and storms, and wind, and drought. And floods and crops and famine and colds and cancer and presidents and prime ministers and popes and economies and stock markets and diplomatic policies and lightning? Who has told every lightning bolt where it should go? I know. God does. This lightning bolt, you go there, and you go there. I was sitting in my office a few months ago, and by the way, in Texas, I know from living here, and people in Texas think everything's bigger in Texas. That is not true. You have little trees in Texas. You want to see trees, you come to North Alabama. We're outside my office window. I look out on some of the most beautiful shagbark hickories and oak trees there are in the world, and one of my favorites was right there in front of my window one day when a storm came through our town. And lightning came as I'm watching out the window and hit the top of the tree and split it from the top to the bottom and bark flew everywhere like toothpicks. And you know what I did not hear from heaven? that one got away from me. (laughs) That lightning did not hit one inch to the right, one inch to the left, one inch to the north, one inch to the south of exactly where God sent it. He is sovereign over lightning the path of arrows in the air, storms. Has God made anything that's stronger than he is? Anyone who's smarter than he is? Who then can sit in judgment on this God and say to him, you've done something wrong here? And to whom is, obli- is God obligated to give an explanation for what he has This is our God. So it's not like everything else God is in control of except your trouble. It is, in fact, the reality of Scripture that your trouble is in God's control as well. Scripture after Scripture talks about this. Let me read a few things just to kind of get a feel for this with you. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. This is not an option. In Job, the very first part of the book, after Job loses just about everything, and remember his wife says, are you still hanging on to your integrity? You've lost your health, your wealth, your status. Why don't you just curse God and die, she says. Thanks, honey. I need your encouragement right now. That's good. And here's what it says at the beginning of the book. Job says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Where does the trouble come from, Job says? It comes from God. At the end of the book, Job 42.11, then they comforted him and they consoled him over the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And Joseph, in that classic confrontation, that famous meeting with his brothers, after they tried to kill him years earlier and sold him into slavery, and he says to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Jonah Chapter 1, verse 4, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm that the ship threatened to break up. Acts 4:28. John and Peter have been in jail. They just get out of jail. They go back to the disciples, tell them what's happened. They begin to pray, O oh, sovereign Lord, they, who's they? Pilate, Caiaphas, the, the murderers of Jesus Christ, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God is sovereign over trouble. But here's the problem with it. This is usually where we run to a verse like, and this is a great verse, Romans 8:28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. Can I just encourage you something if you, don't have, if you haven't done it already? Get this settled Get this settled in your heart, soul, and mind right now before the trouble comes because when the trouble comes, it will sound with a hollow ring in your ears if someone quotes it to you. A few years ago, I buried a 17-year-old boy who grew up in our church. I baptized him when he was 12. He and his buddy in his senior year get into a Jeep to go four-wheeling. They roll the Jeep and he dies. And in an effort to comfort his grieving mother, friends would say something, but think about this. Think of all the people who now are hearing the gospel because Matthew went through this because you've lost Matthew. And his mother said to me in the privacy of a church member to her pastor, I don't care if those people go to hell. I want my son back. And she would tell you now years later that what she said was wrong but what she told me was the honest breaking heart of a child of God because it never makes sense while you're in it. It is always after. In Acts 4.28 when they said they did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. Easy to say now, John, but a few weeks ago you were standing at the foot of the cross with your best friend dying in blood and agony and he just asked you to take care of his mother after he died. Did it seem like this was God's plan then? And later on it starts to make sense. What possible good could come of this? Isn't that what we ask? I know what the Bible says, but in the trouble you ask what possible good could come. Jonah says what possible good could come of this storm. Job says what possible good could come of lightning striking my sheep. What possible good, Joseph might say, as he's stuck in prison, what good could come of this? Jeff mentioned we've known each other 27 years, and I was his youth pastor down in Houston, Texas, and and uh, as several of you asked me, tell us some Jeff Buell stories. And uh, we do not have time for even the best ones. And this probably even wouldn't be the appropriate place. But I do remember, he has this way of being able to take his eyelids and turn them inside out which is really, really creepy looking. And uh, so I would be teaching like the high school group in a Bible study, really deep stuff. I remember I took them through the book of Romans one year and had them memorize an outline for the book of Romans. And I'd be teaching them really serious and into it. I'd look out there and here's a 15-year-old Jeff Buell with his eyelids turned upside down and, and inside out. Kind of, you know, got me off target there for a few minutes. But we were talking yesterday about... Uh, a trip we took, I used to take the high school and junior high boys to Buffalo River up in Arkansas, and we'd go canoeing. And um, we were talking about this last night because this was one of the greatest things that happened on this trip. There was a place where the river goes over a low-water bridge, which means most of the river, the water goes over this, this concrete bridge. Cars would just drive through the river, actually, at that point. But it creates a waterfall, which was really fun for the older boys, especially who had been there, to take their canoes and say, hey, let's just go over the top of it. It takes a little skill. So the younger boys, the middle school guys, are watching the high school guys do this. Few high school boys get over the waterfall. And the, high school, the junior, junior high guys, middle school guys said, we want to do it, but one of the canoes with two middle school guys, one of the guys panicked. He said, I don't want to do this anymore, but the current had already taken them really close to the waterfall. So he thought he would stop the canoe by jumping out of the canoe, landing on the ground, and just hold onto the canoe. But on the upstream side of a low water bridge, it's always deeper, and he couldn't touch the bottom. So the current takes him and, and heads, he heads right for this waterfall. What we could not see at the time is that underneath this low water bridge were culverts, pipes, about 24 inches in diameter, where most of the river was actually going through. We didn't know that. So he's swept toward this and gets sucked into one of those things halfway He's got, he's got his hands up on the top of the concrete bridge holding up his head. And Jeff and some of the older boys get up on this bridge and they hold on to his arms. And now they're barely, the water's up to his chin like this. They're barely holding his, his, his head above the water so he can breathe. And all he kept saying, his name was Bill Bagby, was, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And I'm the youth pastor. I'm the leader. I'm going to take care of this. And inside, in my heart, I was saying, I don't want you to die. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to die. I'm just envisioning this phone call. Uh, Mr. Bagby, uh, we didn't bring Bill home with us, actually. So I get out of my canoe and I run over there. We can't pull him out. He's stuck. If you've ever been in water like this, you know the force of water in a current. So I get down in the river with him, and I straddle him, and I grab hold of his waist, and I start pulling at, from that angle. I, I'm not budging him. And I'm now starting to get tired myself. So I give it one last heave. I pull him out as hard as I can. He moves a little bit, and then I slip. It was real mossy around this, this thing. It's very slippery. And when I slip, I get sucked into the pipe. Now, this is about 20, 30 feet of the blackest black you've ever seen it's really dark and it is completely underwater and I can remember seeing pipes like this that were filled with driftwood or maybe had an iron grate at the end and I had enough time in that pipe to think to myself this is a really stupid way to die (laughs) I get to the end of the pipe and it shoots me out into the waterfall into the river and down the stream they don't know that I look back, I'm standing in the river. They look back, and all I see are this. Where'd he go? They just lost their youth pastor. So I yell at him now from downstream, and I said, Let him go. And Jeff and the guys looked at me, Let him go. I said, Let him go. And they said that Bill Bagby's eyes got like this. And for a moment, the thought must have gone through his mind what possible good could come of you letting me go? But the suffering was a brief moment. And at the other end of the pipe, there was his youth pastor. Boop! I caught him. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I hugged him, and he hugged me. And Bill Bagby and I have been bonded for life. You know why because number two without trouble we would drift from God and depend on ourselves this is this is exactly what Paul is saying here he says that this is what happened to him by the way if you go to second Corinthians chapter 12 he explains it also but he says in verse in verse 9 indeed In our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. C.S. Lewis said it like this in his uh, book, The Problem of Pain, a very famous quote actually, where he talked about this. Why is there pain in the world? So he gives us the answer. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And when nothing else will get the attention of this world, pain, trouble, will get it. So without trouble, we drift from him. Third thing is that credibility grows in proportion to the trouble we endure in proportion to the trouble we endure. You can have credibility, you can have great credibility, but enormous credibility comes with being faithful to God even in the trouble. So the formula from this last weekend looks like this. We put this in a plus and equal sign, that competence plus character equals credibility. And then we added time. So competence plus character plus do this over time gives you great credibility. But now here comes the fourth ingredient. Competence plus character plus time plus trouble results in enormous credibility so that when you speak, people will listen because you have earned the right to talk for they know you are a man or a woman who has suffered trouble and you have seen the faithfulness of God. So, fourthly, God comforts us us in our trouble through believers who have been comforted in trouble. Isn't this what Paul's saying? He says in verse 4, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God because trouble qualifies you for ministry you could never have Otherwise, when I was a singles pastor here 18, 19 years ago, it was a woman, a single woman in our group is the carpenters class then. Some of you here I've met who were in the carpenters class 18 years ago. And uh, a young single woman came to my office. This is back when we were in the old building. And she sat down in the chair and she kind of let out a sigh. And I said, you okay? And she said, today would be my son's eighth birthday. And I said, your son? I didn't know you had a son. And she said, it's the son that I aborted almost eight years ago. And she had worked through a great deal of this in her relationship with God. She confessed her sin and found it to be gracious and forgiving. And God forgave her sin and restored her. And she was growing as a Christian. She said, but I think it's time that I share my story with a few other people. So a few weeks later, in the carpenter's class, she shared her testimony. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And then she started working in a pregnancy resource center, a crisis center here in Fort Worth. And I thought, who else would be better for that? Here's a woman who has been comforted in her trouble who can say to young women, I know how that feels. This trouble qualifies you for unique kinds of ministry and God will not waste it in your life either. There are people in your life that he wants to grace with comfort but he ordinarily does that through his people. So God comforts us in trouble. When we left Fort Worth in 1992 to go to the church where we still are for these last 18 years, and God has been so good to us, we come back here. This is the first time we've been back in 18 years. We got back on Friday, and, man, this place has changed. I, I, don't, I don't remember the other building across the street being that small. It seemed a lot bigger to me. When we left in a rider truck in 1992, we had gone through a very serious time of trouble. Some of you asked about this over the weekend, various things, because you remember what was happening. Well, first of all, I had to finish up at Dallas Seminary and getting my master's thesis done with John Hanna about killed me. That was some trouble. Then Lori, my wife, was in our car with our young son over here on South Hewlin Street, and someone ran a red light and just... Plowed into her Totaled the car Uh, Lori's spleen was damaged But also there was uh, There was some question When they did x-rays About a spot on her lung And we had to wait for days Before the report would get back And I remember thinking What is this Lord What's going on And then I got a phone call From my mother in North Carolina As she told me With tears That after 30 years of marriage My father wanted a divorce And then The worst of all Our little girl, who was 11 months old and not well for some reason, and they couldn't figure out why. Her pediatrician was Dr. Jay Murphy, excellent pediatrician, many of you know. And it got so bad that her vital signs became weaker and weaker, and they had to put her in Cook's Children's Hospital. They put her in pediatric ICU, and they couldn't figure out what was wrong. Till finally, Dr. Murphy said, let's test her for type 1 diabetes. He had never seen anybody that young with type 1 diabetes, but he thought, I don't know anything else to do. So he tested her, and sure enough, type 1 diabetes. We didn't know in those days if she was going to live or die. You put that little bitty baby girl on a pillow and I remember holding her in my lap with that pillow and tubes and hoses going every di- different directions and beeping noises and just pleading with God to let her live but even if she lived we knew that our life was changed forever as only the parents of children with chronic diseases can understand and in particular this one with, with its imminent complications with everyday pricking little fingers, trying to get a drop of blood to do a sugar test, and then finding out how much insulin you put in, and then taking a needle every day, several times a day, your little girl becomes a human pincushion. And our hearts broke because every parent's dream is to have a healthy child. And we just ask God to let her live. And one after the other... God's people came by. You know what I think? I I was pricking her finger one day and and I was giving her a shot and here's what came to my mind. Baby, I'd explain this to you if you'd understand it. Have you tried ever to explain the function of a pancreas to a 12-month-old baby? And some of you think that if God could sit right down with you, and explain to you why this trouble has come into your life, you think you would go, oh! And it would all be better. Let me tell you something. You would not understand. And that's when it hit me. When you love someone, when you really love someone, sometimes, If you want to help them, you have to hurt them. You must hurt them if you love them. The other thing I learned is that when God wants to comfort his people, he usually uses his people who have been comforted. One of the first persons to the hospital is Ken Horton, as you might imagine. Staff members, friends... Nathan Holstein, Janice, elders came by, Tom McGoffin. And there was one in particular that came. I cannot tell you what he and his wife said, but their presence meant the world to me. Leonard and Elvira Johnson. And I knew that within about the course of a year, They had lost two sons to automobile accidents. They had buried two sons. And I thought to myself, you have the right to be here. That man has credibility. Enormous credibility because he'd been troubled. God troubled him. C.S. Lewis said, that probably the first words when we get to heaven will be the word, oh. Oh. That's why that happened. That's why this. That's why that. Oh. And then one of you, during those dark days, and they were dark days, I mean, I was so dazed, I was running red lights. I ran into the, Back end of a guy over here on Camp Bowie Boulevard. I wasn't even watching where I was going. Have you ever been there? You don't even remember driving where you've been. You know, think, how did I get here? I don't remember this. That's when you're dangerous because all these, these troubles in your life. And one of you put something in my hands. And I taped it to the back of my Bible. And I don't remember who it is. So, six or seven, you can claim credit if you want. I, I don't know. It was this poem. And it's been in the back of my Bible ever since. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man. when God wants to mold a man, to play the noblest part, when He yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man, that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways how he ruthlessly perfects, whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. And so we come to him. Broken people. I have no idea what's going on in this congregation. I know a lot better on Sunday mornings at my church, but I just know the tip of the iceberg there. But I would be willing to bet if I was a betting man, and I am when the odds are in my favor. There's trouble in this room. There's trouble here. We're going to receive this morning's offering. I told Ken, we do that first at our church because I want them to give before they hear me. It usually turns out better that way. But uh, we're going to worship the Lord in our giving. Would you pray with me? Now, Father, we come to you, and these gifts that we give, we recognize are just a portion of what you've given us, and so we give back. So many of the things you give to us are wanted things. We've asked for these things. Give us this day our daily bread. Oh, you've given us that and then some. But we fear to ask this prayer. Give us this day our daily trouble. So we just leave that to you. We let you decide when and what And how much for our ultimate good and your ultimate glory. It is in the precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Doxology Bible Church podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. If you're ever in the Fort Worth area, we'd love to worship with you in person at one of our services. For more information on service times and location, visit doxology.church.